Welcome to Archival Fever. In each episode, your intrepid hosts take you into the archive in search of the wild, crazy, and bizarre. I'm Amy Vider. And I'm Caroline Barta. Welcome back to Season 2. This season, we're diving deep into letters and archives near and far. In letters, history and lives join. In this series, we'll consider how letters are a deeply individual and intimate form of writing, yet we're also interested in how they're easily able to be marshaled for social protest. Each episode of the season is going to focus upon a thematic kind of letter, whether it be a rejection letter to now-famous author or self-help letters penned by a famous feminist. Today, our topic is suitably spooky and morbid in anticipation of the holiday at the end of the month. We're looking at Last Letters by two queens, one Scottish, one French, written upon anticipation of their death by execution. Both lived and ruled through periods of extreme turmoil and political calculation. In retrospect, these women can be described as pawns moved about by powerful family connections, or they can be recognized as political agents. Mary Stuart, or Mary Queen of Scots, as she is more commonly known, was witness and agent to significant periods of change on the European continent from December 8, 1542 to February 8, 1587. As biographer Antonia Fraser explains, Mary's story is one of murder, sex, pathos, religion, and unsuitable lovers. At nearly six feet tall, she had quite the physical presence, towering over her spouses. Upon her father, James V's premature death, Mary was crowned Queen of Scots at six days old. Mary was the only legitimate child of her father, James, although he did have several illegitimate male children. Because of her age, a regency was established, first directed by the Earl of Arran, the next in line for the throne, until 1554, when the power of the regency was reclaimed by her mother, Mary of Guise. Both the Earl of Arran and Mary of Guise saw Mary's marriage as a means to stabilize the country and to gain power. Their political maneuvering was largely motivated by religion. The Earl was Protestant, while Mary of Guise was Catholic. By birth, Mary Stuart had a strong claim to the English throne. She was the granddaughter of Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's sister. Catholics did not recognize Henry VIII's subsequent five marriages and children from those marriages as legitimate heirs to the throne. The only child of Henry VIII recognized as legitimate was Mary Tudor, his daughter with Catherine of Aragon. The next available heir would be Mary Stuart, based on her relationship to Margaret Tudor. Henry VIII sought to neutralize Mary Stuart's claim to the throne. When she was only six months old, the Earl of Arran, on her behalf, signed the Treaty of Greenwich, outlining that Mary would move to England at 10 and marry Henry's only son, Edward, who would eventually be Henry VI. Mary's remaining education and upbringing would thus be supervised by Henry VIII. However, continuing military strife between England and Scotland, as well as interventions from the Scottish government, led to the dissolution of this agreement. Pro-Catholic factions within the government, including the Dowager Queen, Mary of Guise, led to a renewed alliance with France. And concerns over the young queen's safety in Scotland, amid renewed fighting between Protestants and Catholics, led supporters to turn to France. Henry II of France proposed to formalize the offer of help through Mary's marriage to his son and heir, Francis. This offer meant that they were also going to consolidate the thrones of Scotland and France. Mary moved to France at five years old and grew up in the French court, where she was well-liked and admired by everyone except for Henry II's wife, Catherine de' Medici. After signing a secret agreement in April 1558 that relinquished her Scottish throne and her claim to the English throne to the French, providing she had no issue, she married Francis only 20 days later. By all accounts, the couple couldn't have been more different. Mary, with her height, beauty, and wit, in comparison to Francis, who was short and is said to have a stutter. Yet the couple were deeply affectionate. 
A year later, Mary and Francis ascended the French throne after Henry II died in a jousting accident. Francis II died at 16 from an ear infection, leaving Mary to reign over Scotland by herself from 1561 to 1567. Mary's monarchy ended with the Protestant rebellion, causing her to abdicate the throne and flee to England. At the time, Elizabeth I led England, and she was Mary's cousin, as well as being a Protestant. Elizabeth faced a dilemma with Mary. On the one hand, Mary was a legitimate heir to the English monarchy, and thus a threat to Elizabeth's rule. Elizabeth was an illegitimate daughter of Henry VIII. On the other hand, the rebellion represented the potential for any monarchy to be overthrown. In fact, the two women never met, but they corresponded by letters. So as a compromise, dealing with the kind of combustible person of Mary, Elizabeth kept her in prison for 18 years. Fourteen of those years were spent at Sheffield Castle, a medieval stronghold. Although Mary occupied herself by writing letters, reading, or practicing embroidery, she remained confined and suffered from poor health. Her damp cell conditions exacerbated her arthritis, among other conditions. She petitioned the queen to be released, arguing that she was wrongfully in prison. Meanwhile, she schemed to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. Many of these schemes were labeled by different names, such as the Rodolphi Plot of 1571, the Throckmorton Plot of 1583, and the Babington Conspiracy in 1586. And each of these represented the threat of a foreign invasion to challenge Queen Elizabeth's power. Ultimately, the series of plots led the English government to pressure Elizabeth that Mary must be executed. And Elizabeth eventually agreed. The English government insisted that Mary's death was a purely political matter. However, as Mary conveys in her last letter, which was written in French, she herself believed she was dying a religious martyr. At 2 a.m. on February 8, 1587, Mary wrote her brother-in-law, King Henry III of France, explaining the circumstances of her death sentence, which was to be carried out in six hours. In the letter, Mary reiterates her commitment to her Catholic faith, as well as the well-being of her household staff. Here is her last letter. I have asked for my papers, which they have taken away, in order that I might make my will, but I have been unable to recover anything of use to me, or even get leave, either to make my will freely or to have my body conveyed after my death, as I would wish, to your kingdom, where I had the honor to be queen, your sister and old ally. Tonight after dinner, I have been advised of my sentence. I am to be executed like a criminal at eight in the morning. I have not had time to give you a full account of everything that has happened, but if you will listen to my doctor and my other unfortunate servants, you will learn the truth, and how, thanks be to God, I scorn death and vow that I meet it, innocent of any crime, even if I were their subject. The Catholic faith and the assertion of my God-given right to the English crown are the two issues on which I am condemned. And yet, I am not allowed to say that it is for the Catholic religion that I die, but for fear of interference with theirs. The proof of this is that they have taken away my chaplain, and although he is in the building, I have not been able to get permission for him to come and hear my confession and give me the last sacrament, while they have been most insistent that I receive the consolation and instruction of their minister brought here for that purpose. The bearer of this letter and his companions, most of them your subjects, will testify to my conduct at my last hour. It remains for me to beg your most Christian majesty, my brother-in-law and old ally, who have always protested your love for me, to give proof now of your goodness on all these points. Firstly, by charity and paying my unfortunate servants the wages due them. This is a burden on my conscience that only you can relieve further by having prayers offered to God for a queen who has borne the title most Christian and who dies a Catholic stripped of all her possessions. 
As for my son, I commend him to you insofar as he deserves, for I cannot answer for him. I have taken the liberty of sending you two precious stones, talismans against illness, trusting that you will enjoy good health and a long and happy life. Accept them from your loving sister-in-law who, as she dies, bears witness of her warm feeling for you. Again, I commend my servants to you. Give instructions, if it please you, that for my soul's sake, part of what you owe me should be paid, and that for the sake of Jesus Christ, to whom I shall pray for you tomorrow as I die, I be left enough to found a memorial mass and give the customary alms. This Wednesday, two hours after midnight, your very loving and most true sister, Mary R., to the most Christian king, my brother-in-law and old ally. This letter presumably reached Henry III in 1587, when Mary's physician was able to deliver his report on Mary's death. It remained in French royal archives until an unknown date, when it was sent to the Scots College in Paris, which is a Catholic seminary. It remained there until the French Revolution, when the seminary was dissolved and its archives dispersed. The letter passed through the hands of numerous owners, including 19th century collector Alfred Morrison. Then, in 1918, the letter was bought and donated to the National Arts Collection Fund. Today, it is held by the National Library of Scotland and in their archives. What actually happened at Mary's execution is debated. Some historians say the queen knelt at the block, said her final prayers, and then stretched out her arms to signal to the nervous executioner that she was prepared. The executioner, however, is believed to have struggled with the task, taking two or three blows to fully sever the queen's head from her body. Another rumor was that the executioner picked up the severed head, only to discover the queen had been wearing a wig. Finally, some say Mary had a dog hidden under her dress, who refused to leave her side even after the execution. Elizabeth died childless in 1603. Without an heir to the throne, Mary's son, James VI, became king of England. Now we're going to turn to another famous monarch, Marie Antoinette, who also penned a letter shortly before her execution. In fact, that's not the only thing these women have in common. They're both related to the Habsburg family. Marie Antoinette was born Archduchess Maria Antonia Josepha Joanna on November 2nd, 1755, the youngest daughter of Marie Theresa and Francis I of the Holy Roman Empire. Which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. In fact, the Holy Roman Empire was a loosely associated multi-ethnic assemblage of European territories. Since the late Middle Ages until its dissolution, during the Napoleonic Wars, the Holy Roman Emperors received an authoritative blessing from the Catholic Pope, although the Church was not directly involved in its governance. Originally, the House of Habsburgs had received their name from the 11th century fortress Habsburg Castle, which is in present-day Switzerland. The Habsburgs held the throne of the Holy Roman Empire from 1438 until 1740. The Habsburgs' significant influence in European affairs is often linked to their practice of making alliances through dynastic marriages. Diplomacy for them was a matter of family. Such a marriage was Marie Antonia's destiny from birth. Her parents deliberated during her childhood as to the most advantageous eventual mate. In 1770, she was married in Versailles to France's heir apparent, Louis Auguste. She became known by the French version of her name, Marie Antoinette. At a mere 14 years old, she also assumed the title Dauphine of France. On May 10, 1774, her husband ascended the throne as Louis XVI, and she assumed the title Queen of France and Navarre. Louis XVI is historically criticized for being a weak ruler. Nor was his queen much better liked. She was dogged over her 18-year reign for her Austrian heritage. The first epithet coined for Marie Antoinette was le trissien, which is a euphemism made all the more vicious by its punning inclusion of the word chien, or bitch, in French. 
One of the major reasons that Marie Antoinette was disliked was that it took the royal couple an astonishing seven years before they had children. Their reign was punctuated with scandal and excess. Louis XVI attempted to implement Enlightenment ideals to ease tensions between aristocratic middle and lower classes. However, he was consistently stymied by noblemen, ending his reform bills before they could be put into law. Moreover, France's role in supporting foreign countries, including their support for the fledgling United States in 1776, often reinforced the belief among French people that their rulers cared more about international affairs and democracy than domestic crises. One of the most remembered controversies of Louis XVI's reign was his deregulation of the grain market, which led bread prices to skyrocket. Marie Antoinette, after being told there was not enough bread, is rumored to have said to French citizens, let them eat cake. In fact, she most likely said, give them all croissants. This food shortage happened in 1789, the year the revolution began. Only two years later, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette's life of luxury in their golden palace came to an end. They were both collected from Versailles and stripped of their royal titles. The king was executed first, leaving Marie to live in squalor for two and a half months as she awaited trial in the Conciergerie, a prison along the Seine and adjacent to the Revolutionary Tribunal. For this reason, it was referred to as the antechamber of the guillotine. The prison wardens, however, treated Marie with compassion, offering her small comforts like a pillow and slipping letters outside the prison walls. On October 16, 1793, Marie Antoinette, deposed Queen of France, was formally charged with depletion of the national treasury, conspiracy against the internal and external security of the state, and high treason due to her intelligence activities in the interest of the enemy. At 4.30 a.m., she penned her last letter, mere hours before her execution. The intended, re the intended recipient was her sister-in-law, Madame Elizabeth, one of her former companions. Like Mary, Queen of Scots, Marie's letter reiterated her Catholic faith, clearing her conscience. Here is her last letter. It is to you, my sister, that I write for the last time. I have just been condemned, not to a shameful death, for such as only for criminals, but to go and rejoin your brother. Innocent like him, I hope to show the same firmness in my last moments. I am calm as one is when one's conscience reproaches one with nothing. I feel profound sorrow in leaving my poor children. You know that I only lived for them and for you, my good and tender sister. You who out of love have sacrificed everything to be with us. In what a position do I leave you? I have learned from the proceedings at my trial that my daughter was separated from you. Alas, poor child, I do not venture to write to her. She would not receive my letter. I do not even know whether this will reach you. Do you receive my blessings for both of them? I hope that one day, when they are older, they may be able to rejoin you and to enjoy to the full your tender care. Let them both think of the lesson which I have never ceased to impress upon them, that the principles and the exact performance of their duties are the chief foundation of my life, and the mutual affection and confidence in one another will constitute its happiness. Let my daughter feel that at her age she ought always to aid her brother by the advice which her greater experience and her affection may inspire her to give him. And let my son in his turn render to his sister all the care and all the services which affection can inspire. Let them, in short, both feel that, in whatever positions they may be placed, they will never truly be happy but through their union. Let them follow our example. In our own misfortunes, how much comfort has our affection for one another afforded us? And in times of happiness, we have enjoyed that doubly from being able to share it with a friend. And where can one find friends more tender and more united than in one's family? Than in one's own family. Let my son never forget the last words of his father, which I repeat emphatically. Let him never seek to avenge our deaths. I have to speak to you of one thing which is very painful to my heart. 
I know how much pain the child must have caused you. Forgive him, my dear sister. Think of his age and how easy it is to make a child say whatever one wishes, especially when he does not understand it. It will come to pass one day, I hope, that he will feel better the value of your kindness and your tender affection for both of them. It remains to confide to you my last thoughts. I should have wished to write them at the beginning of my trial, but besides that they did not leave me any means of writing, events have passed so rapidly that I really have not had time. I die in the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman religion, that of my fathers, that in which I was brought up and which I have always professed. Having no spiritual consolation to look for and not even knowing whether there are still in this place any priests of that religion, and indeed the place where I am would expose them to too much danger if they were to enter it but once. I sincerely implore pardon of God for all the faults which I may have committed during my life. I trust that, in His goodness, He will mercifully accept my last prayers, as well as those which I have for a long time addressed to Him, to receive my soul into His mercy. I beg pardon of all whom I know, and especially of you, my sister, for all the vexations which, without intending it, I may have caused you. I pardon all my enemies the evils that they have done me. I bid farewell to my aunts and to all my brothers and sisters. I had friends. The idea of being forever separated from them and from all their troubles is one of the greatest sorrows that I suffer in dying. Let them at least know that to my latest moments, I thought of them. Unlike Mary, Queen of Scots, Marie Antoinette's execution was swiftly conducted by the guillotine on the Place de la Révolution. Her last letter never reached Madame Elizabeth. Purportedly, Marie Antoinette gave the letter to her jailer, but he surrendered it to the authorities. In 1816, the letter was rediscovered following the second abdication of the throne by Napoleon I. With the Bourbon monarchy restored to the throne, the letter was seen as a testament to the royal heritage. Marie Antoinette's husband, King Louis XVI, was a Bourbon. The letter was read aloud to the Chamber of Deputies and the House of Peers. After another hundred years, the letter resurfaced yet again on January 2, 1938, by a historian, Dr. Dr. Otto Ernst, in Vienna. Now it is stored in the National Archives in Paris. If you happen to visit Paris, there's an exhibition at the Conciergerie on Marie Antoinette until January 2020. So at the end of the day, what can we learn about these women from these last letters? I think one of the things that stood out to us is both their dedication to their faith at the end. Um, One of their priorities is clearly making penance um, and seeking absolution for any sins that they may have committed. It's also interesting who the letters focus on. They focus on their kids, their servants, and they're written to relatives. And it's noticeable who gets diminished in these letters, the people who are carrying out the execution and the governing authorities that have changed to create this execution are all really marginalized. On that note, be sure to check out our website for the photographs and transcripts of these last letters and for more ways to learn about these controversial queens. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes are available the 15th of every month. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Archival Fever and let us know about an archive you love, maintain, or think we should feature in the last five minutes of our show. Our show notes are available at archivalfever.com. Our music is by Yvonne Teo. Sound editing is by Jacob Weiss and his team at UT Liberal Arts Development Studio. Financial support by UT College of Liberal Arts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.